the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Hillsdale College is a special place. I've been getting uh, their Imprimus newsletter since uh, I was a high school student. Um, I've had the occasion to, to speak up there. Good friends up there. Scott Bertram, also a Bennett Academy graduate. A radio guy who runs a radio station there. Of course, uh, President Arn is uh, an outstanding intellect in his own right. It's just, it's one of the, I think, believe the only college that accepts no public money. No, no taxpayer dollars for their students. It's, uh, it's really an oasis there in Michigan, southern Michigan. And so thinking about um, Hillsdale College, which is in the business of traditional education uh, that focuses on the, the great canons of Western civilization, the founding principles of this nation, on this Memorial Day weekend, as we honor those who sacrificed their lives for freedom in combat. And what would they say today about Americans who are sacrificing freedom? They sacrificed their lives in combat for freedom. We're willingly sacrificing our freedom. Is that how far we've come? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Thomas Connor, who's a professor of history emeritus, Hillsdale College. Professor Connor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, which uh, I know you have uh, penned a, a piece about Memorial Day entitled "The Most Unusual Memorial Day." Give us your your thoughts as we uh, stand here today. Well, the uh, the reason for that particular title, Dan, was simply because of the unusual circumstances that the country has lived through uh, for the past past couple months to be celebrating Memorial Day amidst all this fear and anxiety and frustration and, in some cases, uh, outright anger over the abridgment, the prolonged abridgments of our freedom, um, this, this struck me as, as kind of, well, there's never been a, another occasion in my lifetime quite like this. So, But I, I think it's important amidst all of this um, concern that we have over coronavirus, it's important not to lose the real meaning of Memorial Day. Thinking about um, the whole system being at risk, I mean, I, I think about this from a cultural perspective. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the idea that, that we're sort of in the um, uh, 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 um, Robert Curry at the uh, Claremont Institute calls it uh, Fauciism. Um, I, I don't know if there's a difference between Fauciism and, and Gramsciism. Um, the idea that you have a small group of people that exercise cultural hegemony and can impose their will even unfairly, uh, with the support of many people who will suffer from their unfairness. That, 
that seems to me uh, to be uh, afoot in so many ways, even pre-pandemic, but perhaps it's even more accentuated now during this uh, pandemic and the response to it because of what is becoming clearer and clearer uh, in terms of the disproportionate pain and suffering that is being distributed. Yeah, I mean, uh, this uh, what's been happening, Fauciism, as you refer to it, is a, is, is a very clever way of capturing exactly what's going on. I think we've allowed ourselves to be just a bit too dazzled by um, what science, uh, that word, science, science. Science does not speak in one voice uh, on this particular issue, but it was, it's been the progressive's dream for more than 100 years to uh, have experts in a position to basically uh, tell us how to govern ourselves. And um, if, if we're in a war against this microbe, as President Trump and many others have said, one of the things that wars do, uh, history has shown this, is they, they do accentuate, they accelerate trends that have already begun. And uh, I, I fear that uh, this particular war, uh, once we get to the other side of it, assuming we ever do, uh, it's going to leave us in um, in a in a place that's even more concerning than the place we're in right now. Well, see, to me, the thing that's even more concerning that you were talking about, you know, people um, don't have a very small percentage of people have an understanding of the nation's founding, of the principles upon which the nation was founded, of our natural rights as enshrined in the Constitution. Um, but But that's less concerning to me than the loss of sort of the American common sense realism that, um, that that formed so much of our can-do attitude throughout the generations as we're reflecting on previous generations. You know, uh, it, it was interesting. There was a, a survey done by Harvard University on attitudes about reopening, and they find uh, six in ten owners and managers of small, medium-sized businesses have said non-essential businesses should reopen. Uh, 52% of households where someone lost a job or went on forced unpaid leave also said they should reopen. George, uh, George's Benjamin, executive director of the American Public Health Association, saying in comments to those data points, they're basically saying they think the economic risk outweighs the health risk. I don't think they're being callous about the health risk. I think they're making a judgment about around how they value risk. Right. Exactly. If only the panjan drums that have dictated our public policy and wooed politicians to be uh, locked down and bus artists would have made those same sorts of assessments that people are making at the at the individual level now in the wake of the devastation that has been imposed. We've lost the sense of trust your common sense as a free person because don't do you don't do that because we have these experts, these technocrats and look at their degrees and look at all the the uh, the the the, the uh, abbreviations after their names and so forth. And these are the people who are going to run your life for you. Yeah, no, I'm I'm in complete agreement with your assessment. And it is precisely this breakdown or this disappearance almost of common sense that is that is most worrisome. Uh, I have a colleague in the history department uh, who uh, started saying weeks ago, about the response, the lockdown response to the uh, spreading of the disease that uh, he said we're, um, we're committing suicide to keep ourselves from dying. Mm-hmm. And uh, that to me is, 
is, is a common sense way of looking at it. And, and, I, and I do believe that there are many, many, many people in this country who seem to believe that life should be risk-free and uh, uh, certainly never intended uh, by the good Lord who created us all for uh, people who live in this world to be uh, risk-free or without danger nipping at our heels of various sorts. And I, I'm, this is not a prescription for cavaliering a cavalier uh, ignoring of the danger of the disease, but it, it's the sense of balance that we seem to have lost. Uh, President Trump announced that uh, he'll be lowering the flags on all federal buildings and national monuments to half staff over the next several days in memory of the Americans lost to coronavirus. Um, oh, and also we're going to lower the flags to half staff on Memorial Day to honor the military, too. Oh, by the way, um, the uh, uh, the juxtaposition, you mentioned it, too, the idea that this is a war. I find the war metaphor for this pandemic and for those who have died as a result of COVID-19, and that's a tragedy. That is not the same thing, I'm sorry to say, of somebody, whether they were conscripted or did so voluntarily, fighting on behalf of this nation against oppressive regimes for our freedom. That Those two things are not the same. I don't like the metaphor. And I don't like the idea that we're memorialized victims of a particular disease over victims of a versus victims of every other disease from which people die. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with that. I remember um, back early in the pandemic, back in April, when the um, the expert voices, so-called, uh, started saying we're really going to get hit. We're really going to get hit. It was the week after Easter. And I believe it was the Surgeon General. I may be wrong about that, but he actually said, well, this is our Pearl Harbor moment. Yeah. And I don't even know what he meant by that. But, no, it it, 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 it angered me. It, 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 it's frustrating to see how little a sense of, of history people have. No, there's no comparing Pearl Harbor with uh, what, what we've been going through. I, I completely agree with this and with that. And the... The, the dead from, from our wars uh, died in service to the country, there have, which means all of us. Now, there are certainly a lot of first responders you know, who have uh, died in service to the, the sick patients from this terrible disease that they've been, been treating. But uh, no, Memorial Day was meant for something uh, quite different, I think, from, from what we're uh, experiencing now. He is Thomas Connor, professor of history emeritus, Hillsdale College. His uh, essay, A Most Unusual Memorial Day, I'll post on social media. Thomas Connor, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. And I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me, and I This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I've had a fascination with uh, over the road truck drivers ever since I was a kid watching uh, BJ and the Bear, and then uh, a little bit older uh, watching Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. Very different uh, experiences about uh, over the road truck drivers and and their rigs. 
But uh, nonetheless, uh, truck drivers, uh, essential employees during the COVID-19 lockdowns, um, a new appreciation for truck drivers because uh, perhaps a new recognition, a bit of an education uh, of Americans about uh, the importance truck drivers play in transporting goods, part of the supply web that gets the uh, everyday goods you've come to expect to the places they need to be for your purchase. And uh, our next guest is uh, thinking about this and thinking about truck drivers being declared heroes by President Trump. Um, the uh, truck driving songs, maybe, that should be on our playlist right now in these times to help us uh, celebrate uh, fellow Americans and, and uh, I don't know, remember some good music, too. It's not just for Willie Nelson, Alabama. Howard Husock, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where he directs the Tocqueville Project. And uh, he's uh, the author of the new book, Who Killed Civil Society? Howard, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, uh, what got your uh, mind uh, turned towards uh, all of the, the great truck driving oriented uh, music, uh, the truck driving oriented songs uh, uh, throughout music history? Well, a long time before I was a public policy type guy at the Manhattan Institute, I was a music critic. And before that, I was just a kid growing up in Ohio, listening to WSLR, the country music radio station in Akron. And I just became a big fan of country music. And once you get into country music, you know that Truck driving songs are a particular genre that is just a deep one. It's almost literary. And if you haven't heard these songs and you're looking for some relevant diversion right now in this crisis, there they are. I mean, I, I, I'm a huge Johnny Cash fan, so uh, I've been everywhere. Immediately jumped to mind when I'm thinking about songs in addition to, of course, Willie Nelson on the road again. I, the idea that they're a subset of country. So I get into that a little because this is kind of fun. You know, the game you play with a country music lyrics, my favorite country music lyric of all time is from Randy Travis. If my phone ain't ringing, I know it ain't been you calling. And, well, that's that's it in a par with yeah. uh, I'd lie to you for your love. And that's the truth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the perfect uh, construction of the country music lyric. But the subgenre of truck driving songs. Give me some of the characteristics since you're a. Well, they're story story. songs. You can Google or Spotify or whatever, Pandora, Red Sovine, Phantom 309, about a ghost truck driver who plies the roads eternally to replay his avoiding a crash that would have killed schoolchildren. There's C.W. McCall avoiding a feed store in downtown Pagosa Springs when he's carrying a load of chickens, just like they're carrying chickens today. There's so many, and they're deep story songs. That's the thing that really typifies them. They uh, tell a story. And they often have a recitation where the, the singer stops for a while and actually speaks in poetic cadence. So they're very old-fashioned. They're kind of Victorian. They're very sentimental. But, you know, we don't really need a lot of irony these days. We could use some old-fashioned sentimentality. Well, you know, it's funny. It's I, I was just observing this uh, yesterday about uh, isn't it just so perfectly American that the Nathan Hales of the lockdown era, if you will, my perspective on it, are barbers and hairstylists. A 77-year-old barber in uh, upstate Michigan, a, a woman in Dallas, Texas, uh, a barber in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who cut Ben Roethlisberger's hair and got chastised by the governor for doing so. It's just so perfectly American. And it's the same thing thinking about our economy in the digital age and technology 
what's tech that 5G and what's the future going to be in a remote this and remote that. And yet here we are talking about over the road truck drivers, which has been part of Americana since the, the invention of the, you know, of the, the combustion engine just about. Right, right. Those who are working from home who are fortunate enough to work at home couldn't be working at home unless the truck drivers were bringing in the food. But Dan, let's not forget those great songs that I talked about. Dave Dudley, Six Days on the Road. You may want to check that one out, too. He's kind of the king of the truck driver songs, Dave Dudley. And by the way, uh, African-American musicians know that, too. There's a terrific version of Six Days on the Road by the African-American blues singer Taj Mahal. There's a terrific version of Teddy Bear, which is a sentimental Red Sylvine song done by a gospel group called the Jackson Southerners, African-American group. There's a lot of crossover with this stuff. But I hate to say this, those songs could be the leftovers from what I call the cowboy era of trucking. And it may be vanishing before our eyes because, you know, over-the-road trucking may be done by driverless trucks pretty soon. And uh, they may have companions, but those companions are going to be computer operators, not gear jockeys. So it won't happen overnight, but it is starting to happen. I know in, in Nevada, where there are long, flat stretches of highway, you already have the driverless trucks going forward. So listening to these songs, it might be listening to songs about jukeboxes. We don't have many jukeboxes anymore. Uh, that's really interesting. Yeah, no, it's a good point about and and the, the ability to transport things by drone and how that technology develops too as well. I mean, yeah, that's really interesting. It's a good point that this could be part of our history, um, but literally just part of our history, not part of our uh, immediate future or near-term future, as you described. Right, and it's interesting. You talked about protests. We're seeing truck driver protests, too. There's a big one in Houston. Uh, just the other day, 70 truck drivers shut down one of the main uh, loop roads in, uh, in Houston. These are independent owner-operator truckers, and with fewer goods being transported as this economy is being shut down, they're not getting the goods to carry that they used to, but their fixed costs, their payments on their trucks, and especially their insurance payments, they don't go away. And some of the bigger freight carriers with fixed contracts, they're doing okay. But these little guys, they say their, their price per load has dropped in half. They have different villains that they blame. I won't go into all of that. But uh, they staged a blockade on the road in Houston. So that may be the first harbinger of these cowboy truckers go in the way of the, of the buggy whip, unfortunately. Well, I mean, and this is another example of sort of the little guys uh, across sectors. And so the tr- trucking industry is not exempt. The little guys across sectors who are just ill-equipped uh, to survive this sort of shutdown while you know, those that are the bigger players and have access to the halls of power are more protected. No, that is, is totally right. So, you know, if you're operating a big fleet of, of freight carriers, you can absorb uh, some downturn. But if you have a single vehicle and you don't get goods to carry, well, you don't have any margin, just like that hairdresser doesn't have any margin, just like that restaurateur doesn't have any margin. So this thing is, is strangling these guys. And, and they're, they, you, know, you, you can read about them in the Houston Chronicle. Go ahead and search for it. These are every kind of American, you know, a whole diverse range of Americans uh, who are in this business because it, it had a relatively low cost of entry. You could get a commercial license, and it was it was a way up. 
And so it may be something that's uh, not going to be open anymore. Well, I love the piece. It's perfect for uh, heading into Memorial Day weekend. I'm uh-huh. going to go look for some of these songs you mentioned in your piece, which is at theamericanconservative.com. Appreciating truck drivers through truck driving songs. He's Howard Husak, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, Manhattan Institute, where he directs the Tocqueville Project and author of the new book, Who Killed Civil Society? Howard, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Have a good uh, Memorial Day weekend. You too. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, this is a rather telling piece for the Times. David Kaufman, who's a former editor of the New York Times, incredibly, writing a piece for NBC News. Having a Peloton during the pandemic saved me, but the more I ride, the more weary I get. You know, with uh, health clubs closed so many places, Peloton has been doing quite well. Uh, Ride the exercise bike in your home and be able to connect with people around the world virtually. Genius. But uh, David Kaufman isn't enjoying it because he's noticed that the Peloton classes he takes where there's a a black instructor, it's like rap music and and other uh, Caribbean music, sort of, quote unquote, black music. And then with white instructors, it's a pop top 40 uh, or heavy metal. It's so-called white music. And in this day and age, why can't white instructors play rap and black instructors play Metallica? And then um, he uh, prattles on about how uh, what else concerns him is the way black instructors engage their mostly white audiences with a type of contrived, quote unquote, brother from another mother banter that almost feels as if they're trying to make those writers black by association, clearly playing into a certain kind of white fantasy, like when white suburban kids think they're from the hood because they can quote Jay-Z. These are the things David Kaufman is worried about uh, separating us during the time of pandemic and lockdown. It's the musical selections of different instructors based on their race in Peloton classes and the not-so-witty banter that occurs between the instructors and those that are participating in their class. I've done a lot of flywheel classes, so I know just how unwitty the banter from instructors normally is. But this is of grave concern to the future of the republic According to David Kaufman, a former New York Times editor, I can't say that enough because it so denigrates the reputation of the New York Times, which it so richly deserves. For more on the topic of this sort of social justice pablum, we're pleased to be joined by David Azarod, assistant professor at Hillsdale College's Van Andel Graduate School of Government in Washington, D.C. Professor Azarod, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So you wrote this excellent piece called The Social Justice Endgame for Claremont Review of Books, which uh, actually poured over quite a bit earlier in the week with uh, former NYU professor Michael Rechtenwald uh, per his new book, Beyond Woke. So to sort of weave in some of your observations in the context of this op-ed about um, the crisis we face as a, a nation because of uh, Peloton instructors' musical selections. <laughs> I, I mean... The point of my piece is to look beyond the fluff kumbaya promises of identity politics. They tell us that everything that they're doing, from Peloton to racial preferences to disparate impact to speech codes, 
So the constant hysteria in this country about seeing bigotry and racism and discrimination everywhere is supposedly in the name of a Benetton ad, that one day if we do this long enough, we're all going to get along. And the point of my piece is to show that that is actually not the intended effect of identity politics, that it will lead to division, resentment, and hatred, and that would should be taken in by the surface fluff kumbaya rhetoric. Well, yeah, why does it have to lead? Why is that the ultimate end? Why is that inescapable? Well, twofold. Uh, one is many people who practice identity politics deny the possibility of justice. They deny the possibility of reconciliation, forgiveness, civic friendship, or the peak ideal, if you take MLK's I Have a Dream speech, brotherhood, which, look, is an ideal that will never fully happen for a nation of 300 or so million citizens, but it's at least something to aspire to. You look at Ta-Nehisi Coates, America's leading charlatan on race questions. Mm. His message is America is irredeemably and fundamentally racist, and one needs to accept this, and there's no such thing as justice. So some of them say that. And then the others who don't promote policies, whose net effect is to pit us against one another, is to balkanize the nation, is to tribalize it. I mean, they have rejected the ideal of colorblindness. They have rejected the ideal of meritocratic, of a meritocratic society in which you judge people according to their skills, their aptitudes, their character, not the color of their skin. They want permanent color consciousness. And so when afterwards some of them say, and, you know, if we do that long enough, we're all going to get along, I just don't buy it. I mean, you're fostering racial consciousness. You're creating a legal political system that benefits some racial groups at the expense of others. And the net effect of that in the long run cannot be civic friendship. It can only be some form of Lebanon, Yugoslavia, or all of these countries that are broken down into tribal ethnic lines. When we come back with Hillsdale College Professor David Azarod, I want to go back to the um, point you were making about uh, the notion that social justice warriors will give up power they attain at a certain point. Uh, more with David Azarod when we return. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. We're back with Hillsdale College professor David Azarod, and I want to go back to the claim that you were making about uh, about power. And then your conferred power, and then the expectation is we're supposed to believe them and say, and then I'm going to willingly give up the power once we've achieved a certain uh, you know, state of equity. And there's just, I mean, this just runs counter to, to human nature, much less uh, perhaps their true motivations. Not only that, what really runs counter to human nature is I'm going to stoke hatred in your soul. I'm going to get you to upset compulsively and see racism, sexism, homophobia everywhere and anywhere from, as I said, Peloton classist. I mean, you, you, everyone knows this at this point. And then the claim is, and if we do this long enough, then one day we're all going to get along. Right. But h- how do you uproot hate, hate from the soul? Right. Hate, be, hate, hate begets love is what they're saying. 
Yeah, and without Christianity, I mean, this is the crazy part. So, you know, we call MLK Dr. King. He's Reverend King. He was a Christian minister more than he was. I mean, that was a more important part of his identity than was his PhD. They've abandoned the Christian element of the civil rights movement from the 60s, which did preach forgiveness and reconciliation. They've gotten rid of that. They draw their roots from the black power, black nationalist movements. And then you look into the human soul. I mean, how is that supposed to happen? Teach people to hate, and then one day that'll just disappear and they're all going to get along? And That's not the way it works. And in reality, it's a numbers game. And anytime you're in a numbers game where you're counting by uh, race or any other demographic, uh, the uh, the answer to how much more is always more. I mean, it's just it goes on in perpetuity that you will never fill the cup. There will the, the question, how much more, how much longer, always longer. How much more do you are, are we to 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 deliver always more? Yeah, you can never have enough women, minorities, people of color, all of the recognized, designated, aggrieved identity groups in the desirable realms of life. And uh, you can always have fewer straight white men or straight people, white people or men in these realms. You can always do a little bit more. They claim ostensibly that the goal is statistical parity, that we should have an America that more or less reflects its demographic composition. Uh, the problem is that's not true because they never notice disparities that cut against the groups they don't like, straight people, men, white people. They only notice the disparities that cut against the groups that they champion, you know, the coalition of the aggrieved. And, and I, I love the question that you put, and this should be put to all of the social justice warriors out there. Okay, I got it. Uh, the, the straight white cis male is uh, the great Satan. So uh, what are we to do with them? Tell me what you want to do with them. Where do they go? Well, what should happen well, to them? Well, I, 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 I want to do with them what I want to do with all my fellow American citizens, which is treat them equally under the law. And then in the private sector, uh, also treat them equally. I, I realize that discrimination will never be fully rooted out from the human soul, but we can at least try. What the social justice warriors want to do is kind of a threefold program. On the question of race, they want to transform America into a majority-minority country. So that's one of the big arguments for large-scale third-world immigration is to reduce the percentage of the population that is white because supposedly a less white America will be a more just America because white people are responsible for all the ills in American history and across the world. Then when it comes to men, obviously they can't really do that. They're not pushing for sex-selective abortions to no longer have boys, but they want to deconstruct masculinity. They basically want to feminize men, masculinize women, and have them converge into an androgynous middle. And when it comes to sexuality, they want to pr promote uh, anything but straightness. So bisexuality, homosexuality, they want to, uh, they claim supposedly that it's by nature, which is, you know, there's no evidence that there's any sort of a gay gene. It, it's, it's a ludicrous proposition, but it suits them to claim that. But you could see that their efforts are aimed at, you could say, deconstructing heterosexuality and promoting all sorts of other sexual identities, again, to reduce the number of people who would identify as straight. Th that seems to be the project to deal with these 
problematic identity categories. And this is all in, in service of a particular uh, philosophical worldview or ideological worldview. So they are seeking power as the means to certain ends that you're describing the means uh, and perhaps in some cases the ends are the means um, uh, and the means are the ends. But but what what is the what is the sort of larger, bigger play here? We We want the right people in power and then we want the right people in power in order to do what? It seems to be a, 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 a worldview that I would think of in theological terms, not that they're claiming divine revelation, but its primary concern is with explaining why there is evil in the world. And the answer they seem to have settled on is because of straight white men. That is the root of all evil. And if we could get rid of that, we would live in a world without evil. So it's the, it's, it's the you know, that is the great one of the great theological questions, one of the main questions that religions deal with. Why is there evil in the world? Well, there's a Christian answer, which is original sin, and God has a divine plan, and there's an afterlife. Uh, because that has uh, disappeared amongst elite society, you still need an explanation for that. There's still the problem of evil. They've settled on blaming the great white Satan, uh, the great white straight men. And the goal, as it is with all cultists, is to create heaven on earth, essentially. Yeah, so, so again, with, with some, there is a split between the more nihilistic, pessimistic wing. I, I think Ta-Nehisi Coates is a leader of that faction that says there is no hope. You just struggle, but with no hope of ever achieving justice. Uh, and then there's, I think, the larger wing that says yes. And eventually, you know, in a faraway town, a time, pardon me, uh, we'll all get along and we'll live in a wonderful world of plenty and justice. But you see that that is really an afterthought, that the, the, the ruling passion in the soul is hatred. It is a form of hostility to groups. It is a form of racism, but it's all justified. This is the great paradox. It's racism in the name of anti-racism. And supposedly, this is what makes it just. When we come back with uh, Hillsdale College professor David Azerod, I want to uh, discuss whether or not he thinks identitarian politics will survive the pandemic and the lockdown response. More with David Azerod when we come back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. We're back with Hillsdale College Professor David Azrod, and uh, just thinking about uh, coming out of the, the pandemic and the transformative impacts the pandemic will have. Uh, there's you know, a lot of prognostications about how we'll be different as a people and as a country. Uh, maybe we'll be more serious. Maybe we'll recognize life is replete with risk. Maybe we'll be more sober about the difficult choices that you have to make in life. And uh, maybe we won't have time to worry about uh, people who want to be called uh, uh, pronouns that uh, uh, people want to that want to make a big deal about being called by being referenced by the right pronouns. But it seems to me, based on what you're saying, is uh, the idea that identitarian politics will be swept away by uh, COVID-19 and a reshaped America. uh, Not so much. Probably not. I mean, I would hope so. 
but you know, my hopes are are tempered when it comes to the good that may come from COVID. When I think of the last major crisis we had to deal with, which was 9/11, and what was the net result of that in terms of America learning any valuable lessons? Nothing really. I mean, the the lesson that the elites learned was that Islamophobia is bad. So that when the Fort Hood shooting happened with Nidal Abu Hassan, the le- message was we can't allow diversity to be a casualty here. Mm. And then we not only did nothing about our borders, I mean, our immigration system remains a joke. We actually had an increase in Muslim immigration since 9-11. So I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I, I would love to think that COVID will lead to a... Uh, regrounding in reality by our elites. But, you know, one thing we all know is that it's very hard to unsettle a religious dogma in people because you've left the realm of evidence and facts. It's a faith. So I I, I would hope so, but don't count me as optimistic. I'd love to come back on your show a few years from now and you can play this clip again and say you were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that would be nice. Uh, we'll see. David Azarod, assistant professor of Hillsdale College's Van Andel Graduate School of Government in Washington, D.C. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Take care. A reminder to check out Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus. It's a documentary I've been telling you about for the last couple of weeks, presenting con- convincing evidence that the biblical account of the Exodus is true. The uh, work of investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who journeyed to Egypt, Israel and throughout the world to search for answers to the very important question, did the stories, like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really happen? The results of his investigation are monumental. Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, at home with the other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. The other movies in the series, there's three of them. Exodus mentioned, The Moses Controversy, and The Red Sea Miracle. Uh, Included in The Exodus is a panel discussion moderated by Gretchen Carlson, featuring... uh, Friends of the show, Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, and Graham Lotz. Watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and other movies in the series. To do so, go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. President Trump touring a Ford facility in Ypsilanti, Michigan, yesterday. And it's remarkable, the um, the focus of the D.C. press corps. It, it never ceases to amaze on whether President Trump should have been wearing a mask at all times during his visit. He was wearing a mask in one part of the facility but not in another part of the facility. This became a question for the press corps. And uh, A.G. Nussel of Michigan um, done uh, trying to uh, close down a 77-year-old barber, f- turned her attention over to Donald Trump and you know, banned him from Michigan for violating uh, 
the Ava Perona of East Lansing's order about masks. There was a lot of interest about whether you would end up wearing a mask today. Could you just take us through your thought process of why you decided not to wear Well, a mask? I did wear. I had one on before. I wore one in this back area, but I didn't want to give the press the pleasure of seeing it. But no, where I had it in the back area, I did put a mask on. Did you have the goggles on too as well, sir? I did. I had goggles. Goggles and a mask. Right yeah. Back. Why would you not be and wearing, here's another one. Why would you not here. be wearing it? For no because reason? in this area, why would you, you not take be wearing it, it here, sir? Uh, not necessary here. Well, everybody's been tested, and I've been tested. In fact, I was tested this morning, so it's not necessary. No, continue. Well, Just keeps going. I was on. given. I was given a choice, mm -hmm. and I had one on in an area where they preferred it. So I put it on, and it was very nice. It looked very nice. Uh, but they said uh, not necessary here. Presidential seal on it. This is bad boy. Uh, th that matters so much to your lives, doesn't it? That exchange. Uh, one thing that does matter is what Trump said about uh, the expected second wave of the virus come the fall, winter. People say that's a very distinct possibility, a standard, and we're going to put out the fires. We're not going to close the country. We're going to put out the fires. It could be, whether it's an ember or a flame, we're going to put it out. But uh, we're not closing our country. Not closing our country again. Um, that's about probably as close as you'll get to admission of some lessons learned from President Trump uh, 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 on this topic. Uh, for more uh, on what President Trump had to say and um, a bunch of other matters, we're pleased to be joined again by Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, special report, 5 p.m. Chicago time, weekdays, number one best-selling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II, Brad, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. So um, it seems like President Trump and most of the governors around the nation have uh, understood that there is a, a, a opinion change that's occurring uh, within the body politic, uh, wanting a reopening, not just as the weather gets better, but as economic conditions get worse. And so it was interesting that President Trump took the occasion there basically to say, look, I don't I don't care if the strain is more severe or less severe. And there's some discussion about that ongoing. We're not shutting shutting down the country ever again. So I, or at least I won't be party to that. Yeah, and I think that uh, that's part of the lessons learned, as you mentioned. Uh, I think that they're looking to states that are reopening successfully and um, really focusing on nursing homes and vulnerable and making sure that those people are sheltering in place, but the rest of the economy is moving forward. And if you have, as he said, flare-ups, then you isolate for 14 days and you um, deal with it as a per-element basis. But uh, I think you're getting to a point where more and more people are saying, why did we do this to begin with? And um, because the economic devastation is really taking its toll, even our latest poll, though, shows people are fearful uh, about the reopen, um, in part because everything they've seen and heard. Uh, but those poll numbers are going down. And I think you're going to see a push for more of that. Yeah, there was a Harvard poll done. I know Fox did some as well, but this is interesting where uh, six in 10 owners or managers of small to mid-sized businesses, you know, forget Republican, Democrat, six in 10 owners or managers of small to mid-sized businesses said non-essential businesses should reopen. Uh, you know, they understand they're under a time crunch. Well, there's 50 states that all are in one way or another reopening in some phase. And even though it's really just a handful of states that have meet, met the CDC phase one guidelines for reopening, 
all 50 states are trying because no matter Democrat or Republican governor, they realize that their states financially and the people inside can't handle it. And, uh, you know, it, it's it, the, as the sort of the argument about what we did and what we could have done rages on. New York Times publishes this uh, model out of uh, Columbia University suggesting if we had uh, moved to uh, social distance earlier, just a week earlier, we could have saved, uh, you know, 80 uh, percent of the lives that were lost as a during a certain time period that they looked at the, the data. Uh, but David Gar- or, uh, Jim Garrett, excuse me, over at the National Review makes a good point. That's that's always lost in this discussion. This is a free society and consent of the governed turns out to be really important. And so initially, much to the sh- this will probably come as a shock to uh, much of the D.C. press corps, not you, but much of the rest of it. You know, those red states that uh, reopened more quickly than other states, they were also uh, shutting down, sheltering in place more quickly than was reported because people, as information was coming out, were doing it themselves before uh, any politician was making the formal action of an executive order. They were already adjusting their conduct based on the information that was being made publicly available. And then they continue adjusting their conduct as we get more and more information, as we learn more and more and uh, as we come out of this, including learning things that we thought were true that are not true, like transmission on surfaces and stuff uh, that came out this week. And, and so and so consent of the governed uh, on the way in and on the way out. And that that is just not part of the larger discussion very often uh, within press circles, certainly not the pages of The New York Times. No, that's exactly right. I mean, citizens have a say in how this all goes down one way or another. How about this? Customers have a say. You're not going to go into a store yeah. that's not doing what it can do to keep you safe. So that will be your choice, whether you go to that store and buy something there. And it would be it would behoove that owner to make it as safe as possible. To the Columbia study, you know, if China had acted right. two months earlier, um, 100% of the deaths probably here uh, would be – would not be a factor. And uh, I think the world is focusing on that more and more. Uh, I, I wanted to, to switch gears and get your um, your assessment of this story about Joe Biden and um, former Ukrainian President uh, Petro Poroshenko, these, these taped conversations that have uh, been made public that uh, don't necessarily cast Joe Biden in a particularly favorable light. I don't know that they're a smoking gun of anything illicit either, but I mean, I guess the quid pro quo standard that was set during impeachment uh, could be invoked here. But I just wonder the Washington Post is trying to dismiss this as a big nothing burger. And I wonder if this is at least a something burger. There are questions that these conversations uh, prompt. Yes, of course. I mean, we acknowledge that the tapes are edited heavily. Uh, they do come from a Ukrainian pro-Russian legislator. Uh, but it is Joe Biden's voice, whether it's clips or not, uh, interacting with the former president, Poroshenko, uh, talking about, like he did on that soundbite that everybody's seen a million times, getting rid of the prosecutor and the billion dollars on the other side of loan guarantees from the U.S. So is it, um, you know, the smoking gun? No, but it does bring up 
the issue of, of Ukraine and how he dealt with it. And then that leads to obviously Hunter Biden and what he was doing with uh, Burisma, the company there, and also China. So it's going to be an election issue. It's not, you know, you can't discount that it's there. So um, I don't know why The Washington Post does. It's, is there any um, anything that you're hearing, any scuttlebutt, of a serious nature that Joe Biden is not going to make it to November uh, as the Democrat Party nominee. I know, you know, every time something like a Susan Rice email to herself is declassified or uh, tapes like the ones we were just discussing are released there, you know, the specter of Andrew Cuomo is raised again. Mm-hmm. I, well, first of all, I, I think there are people inside New York who are very upset with Andrew Cuomo and how he handled nursing homes. No kidding. Um, and, uh, you know, so his star may be not as bright as as it, it's perceived on some channels. But I think that um, that there is uh, obviously that scuttlebutt and talk, but I think it's not real. And uh, there's a real effort to get Biden to the finish line. I think his VP choice is going to be important. Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, hosts a special report weekdays, 5 p.m. Chicago time. Number one bestselling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Darren Gamble. To win WW2. Brett, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. So keep on rocking me, baby. 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 Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, our friend, friend of the show, David Marcus, Federalist.com contributor, writing in the New York Post, the uh, headline tabloid paper cover story David Marcus earned, and New York City's lockdown now, exclamation point, one man's plea, he writes, the Big Apple is dying, that streets are empty, the bars and jazz clubs, restaurants and coffee houses sit barren, beloved haunts, storied rooms, perfect slice joints are shuttered, many for good. The uh, sweat equity of countless small business owners is evaporating. Instead of getting people back to work, providing for their families, our mayor talks about a fantasy land new deal for the post-coronavirus era. Open the city, exclaims Marcus. All of it right now. Broadway shows, beaches, Yankees games, the schools, the top of the freaking Empire State Building, everything. New Yorkers have already learned to socially distance. Businesses can adjust. The elderly and infirm can continue to be isolated. He continues, what the hell is going on? Is anybody in charge of this situation or are we just left with the governor and his talking head brother arguing on CNN about which of the two Ma loves best? Who cares? Speaking of those two knuckleheads and their Groucho and Zeppo routine on uh, CNN, did you catch this one about the swabs? This is a governor who sent 40 to 100 infected individuals back into nursing homes in his state. Perhaps the most catastrophic decision any governor has made during the pandemic response. And they're having a a good old time sharing guffaws over Chris Cuomo's prop comedy. Here he goes, full uh, carrot top. You had video come out before we go to break, where you wanted to encourage people to get tested and some people are afraid it's going to hurt. So you had video of it that I want to show the audience of you actually getting tested. Um, Here it is. 
there's you, you were kind of funny, and they were testing you. Um, now, a few questions about this process. First of all, is it true that when you were having the test administered, you inhaled and the doctor's finger went all the way up your nose and got stuck and had to be released with a tool? Is that true? Just to, just to deal no, with the record. She, she, but I'm bummed. she wanted to comment that I have a little button nose mm. and she was afraid that the swab would actually hurt because it, it extended my uh, nasal cavity. The proboscis uh, issue. She's speaking about the delicacy of, of, the, of the nose. And that's what, you know what, I understand. This is the normal swab. And it just descends from there. This is why, as we were talking with Brett Baer in the previous segment, despite what some news outlets are attempting to convey, that Andrew Cuomo is America's governor, you know, like CNN and Chris Cuomo, uh, there's a lot of people not too happy with Andrew Cuomo because of the nursing home decision and, generally speaking, what David Marcus is writing about in the New York Post. It may not wear well for those thinking that he is uh, off stage waiting for Biden to falter a little bit more before he is the white knight tap to take out Trump in November. I mean, these guys. And this is just after Chris Cuomo got read the riot act by Kaylee McEnany, as we talked about yesterday, <laughs> excoriating President Trump for being on an HCQ regimen, which is FDA approved and including for emergency use with respect to COVID-19. When he said, did Chris Cuomo, after he was infected with COVID-19, that he had used quinine, which is uh, no longer FDA approved. Uh, and so back to David Marcus's piece. In late April, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp defied experts by opening a state. The Atlantic Magazine wants a serious publication that should now come with a stick of stale bubblegum. <laughs> Accused him of engaging in human sacrifice. Obviously, we talked yesterday about the DeSantis treatment and the comeuppance that he is delivering to the media. We find that the states that were actually earlier to to uh, end their lockdowns and begin their reopening have seen, rather than human sacrifices or even a spike in cases, a decline in cases. Mm -hmm. We should always consider that we are led by idiots, as one of my friend likes to remind me. Cuomo and de Blasio have no plan. There is not a single question about when New York can get back to normal, to which they have a straight answer. Not one. They cash their taxpayer checks while immiserating the rest of us. Precisely. And uh, it is the case in the other bad example states, Michigan, Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, to some extent, California immediately jump to mind, don't they? So where he put David Marcus wrote, we should always consider we're led by idiots. Cuomo and de Blasio have no plan. Well, you could substitute Pritzker and Lightfoot and have the same conversation about Illinois. You have to hear. I mean, you think de Blasio makes some ridiculous statements. And if you think that you'd be right, being the Sandinistan that he is, uh, I'll tell you what, he doesn't have much on Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago. She needs to start getting more national profile. And I'm here to help. The things that she said at a press briefing yesterday where she rejected the May 29th beginning of the next phase that is being advanced at the state level. So now you have uh, the governor and the mayor of Chicago at odds, uh, him wanting to allow restaurants to ha offer outdoor seating starting May 29th. And Lori Lightfoot, the mayor, saying this. May 29th is the expiration date of the state stay-at-home order. Um, as everyone surely knows, the city of Chicago has its own responsibilities and obligations to um, crafts, policies, public health policies that are specific to the city of Chicago. 
I don't think we're going to be ready by May 29th, but my hope is that soon in June that we will be ready. Mm-hmm. And what's the baseline? The baseline for all businesses to open back up are two things. What are you doing to protect your employees, and what are you do- doing to protect members of the public? That's uh, premise number one, that uh, businesses will not move to protect and make safe and comfortable, uh, allay the fears of employees and patrons. But your mayor will. That's her job. Listen to this. We have made a difference in saving lives in the city because people have understood the need to adhere to the guidance. And that can't be said in other parts of the country and other parts of the country right around us. You know, again, I don't I don't like to cast dispersions on other states and other cities. But you look at what's happened in Iowa. You look at what's happened in Georgia or Florida and some of these other states that just have not paid attention whatsoever to the guidance of reasonable, public, smart. This is the gaslighting that I just find remarkable. And, of course, the Chicago Press Corps is as dutiful as the New York Press Corps is as dutiful as the D.C. Press Corps to run interference for these maniacs in public office. I mean, any metric by which you measure Illinois versus Florida and Iowa and Georgia, the three states she mentioned are doing much better than Chicago is, than the state of Illinois is. There's just no basis in anything resembling reality in what she's saying. And uh, this is somebody who's really enjoying her moment. There are politicians that use their power to advance the interests of their constituents. And then there are politicians who use their power to lord over their constituents. Guess which one Lori Lightfoot is. When I find myself in the circumstance of calling the survivors of people who have died, I don't want their deaths to be in vain because we are we are so fixated on a moment of pleasure that can impact our city for a lifetime. And, and yeah, I, I will say the same thing that I told my 12 year old. I don't care what other people do. You're my kid. I am the mayor of the city. In uh, Chicago, we're all the 12 year old daughter of Lori Lightfoot. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. President Trump, uh, during his tour of the Ford manufacturing facility in Ypsilanti, Michigan yesterday, asked about um, the prospect of a second wave that has been predicted by Many public health experts, the nature of the severity of a potential second wave this fall or winter is a matter of some discussion. But here's what President Trump had in terms of a reaction to uh, what his response will be if a anticipated second wave does come this fall winter. The people have done a great job and General Electric Ford and all the other people that work with them have done fantastic work. And Honeywell, again, I was there last week, but Honeywell, they've done fantastically well also. Thank you very much. People 
people say that's a very distinct possibility, it's standard, and we're going to put out the fires. We're not going to close the country. We're going to put out the fires. There could be, whether it's an ember or a flame, we're going to put it out. But uh, we're not closing our country. Not closing our country. That's not. We're not going to do the yo-yoing of opening and closing, at least as far as he's concerned. Uh, maybe some governors and mayors in certain states and cities have a different idea. But uh, that's an uh, encouraging indicator that we won't see another shutdown that has wrought nearly 40 million first-time unemployment filers in the past eight weeks. And yet uh, there are some who are still very optimistic that um, – uh, a recovery is not that far away and that we will survive this and thrive in the not too distant future. One of them is Dr. Michael Strain, Director of Economic Policy Studies at the Arthur Byrne and the uh, Arthur F. Byrne Scholar in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. Michael Strain, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be back. Yes. Uh, good to have you back. And uh, the American dream is alive and well, you write. Thirty three percent unemployment in Kentucky. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, look, I, I, I'm, uh, probably more of a cynic than an optimist by nature. So, so, you know, imbue me with the optimism that you possess. So, uh, I, I want to be perfectly clear and, and, and I, I, I think I was in that, um, in that essay, uh, that, that we are facing a very, very serious economic crisis right now. Mm-hmm. Millions of, of, of people's uh, livelihoods are in, in, in great risk and, and millions and millions of workers and their families are, are suffering severe hardship right now. Um, there's just no question about that. We need a robust uh, public policy response. Congress has done a good job so far. There's going to be a lot more work to do. And the economy, workers, households are going to need support from the government for many, many months uh, to come here. Um, you know, this is this is not something that we've dealt with and it's not something that's in in the rearview mirror. Um, at the same time as that's happening, the the fundamentals of the American uh, economy are in good shape. Uh, the, the the fundamentals of our of our uh, political economy, uh, our our uh, economic culture, the way that the way that public policy interacts with the economy are, are, are sound. And if you look over a longer sweep of time, if you look over the last three decades, what you see is uh, an upward march of economic progress for typical workers and, and, and for typical households. And you see that upward march uh, uh, exist throughout recessions and expansions. Um, there have been three recessions in the past three decades, uh, not counting the one that we're currently in, including the Great Recession, which was incredibly traumatic. These these were setbacks. These were challenges. These were obstacles. But in every case, we have seen workers and households uh, overcome those challenges. And my point is that uh, things are terrible right now, of course, and, and we need public policy to help address that, but that workers and households should be confident that they will be able to overcome this challenge they will be able to continue their upward march of economic progress. And the reason they should be confident about that is because the historical record clearly demonstrates that that is what they have done in the past. Well, I want to pick up our discussion there because it seems to me that some of your optimism is predicated on 
uh, well, a lot of your optimism is predicated on good public policy. And what exactly does that look like? Because there's a real divide in terms of the road to recovery. It runs through uh, uh, propping up uh, lost revenues in the public sector or uh, allowing the productive sector to uh, sort of heal itself. Uh, we'll be, we'll uh, begin there when we come back with Michael Strain, the Director of Economic Policy Studies and the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. More with Michael Strain right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking to Dr. Michael Strain, Director of Economic Policy Studies and the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute, and he was laying out his case for while we have a long slog ahead of us, um, there's reason to be optimistic because of the, the work ethic and the, you know, the Protestant uh, work ethic, if you will, and the spirit of capitalism in America, uh, in part, and some sound public policy, perhaps, uh, in part as well. But it seems to me we have this divide, uh, Michael. We have uh, mayors and governors, the de Blasios and the Lightfoots, the Cuomos and the Pritzkers and the Whitmers of the world saying, you have got to federal government has got to uh, uh, prop up state and local governments. They have got to give us more disaster relief. I mean, Gavin Newsom in California wants a trillion dollars uh, right now uh, that recovery runs through the, pro- the public sector. And uh, I would suggest that it actually runs through the productive sector that finances the public sector. And the public sector has largely been insulated from this to 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 present, particularly on the employment side. Uh, And it it seems like if we don't get the path right, then uh, this may not be uh, the optimistic uh, uh, recovery that you suggest. Well, I I, I agree that um, that better public policy could help uh, support the economy and and could help preserve productive capacity and mitigate economic pain and, and, and hasten the recovery. Um, and of course, I agree that that it's not preordained that the United States will follow the best course uh, for public policy in this situation. I would say that that I think uh, Congress has done a, a a pretty good job so far. Um, I mean, if you look at what was included in the Phase Three um, uh, uh, economic recovery package, uh, known as the CARES Act, that was passed in March. That was a big bill. It, it it came together in a matter of days. Um, it created, uh, you know, a new government program, uh, a major new government program, um, and 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 the basic structure of that uh, two trillion dollar piece of legislation was very sound. Uh, I mean, it's not you know precisely what I would have done, and 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 you know there there are you know there have been issues and challenges, but on the whole, I think Congress really rose to the to the challenge and 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 did a great job and 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 has done a lot of good to help uh to help the 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 economy and to help workers and households um you know the question of course that you raise is will that continue going forward 
I agree with you that we're seeing some some troubling signs that cooperation between the political parties uh, in Congress may have um, may have may have broken down, uh, and uh, there there is some real disagreement about what the best path forward is. Uh, you know, particularly on aid to the states, and 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 Illinois, of course, features prominently in these debates. Uh, you know, my my strong uh, uh, prediction is that a compromise will be reached, where you will see uh, Congress give uh, uh, grants to the states to help support state government at this time. Um, states, of course, can't run budget deficits, so they 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 would need that um, they would need that support wow. uh, to avoid laying off workers or, or cutting essential services, or more likely both. Um, but that there will be measures that that will be taken to make sure that um, that the money that states receive isn't used to bail out their pension systems and, and things of that nature. So, you know, I think what we're seeing right now is is the political process, and we're seeing the the kind of early stages of it, but. I would be quite surprised if at the end of the day we don't see uh, the federal government giving uh, some grants to states. And I, and I think that'd be the right thing to do as well. Why is it the right thing to do? Well, I think it's, I think it's the right thing to do because uh, it would support support the economy. It would help to maintain the, the productive capacity of the economy. I mean, again, the states can't run budget deficits. And so – Well, kind of, sort of. I mean, you know – to, to, technically, they can't. But I mean, they so they pass phony budgets like we do, we, like we've done in Illinois for 20 years, where you don't take into account uh, real uh, uh, liability, uh, uh, liabilities that are accruing in real time, like pension benefits. And that's how you run up one hundred thirty billion dollars in unfunded liabilities. Yeah, sure. That's right. I mean, there are there are, of course, budget games, but kind of on the whole, states are much more limited in their ability to spend more money than the revenue they bring in than the federal government. And so what you what you would see and what you are already seeing is states being forced to certainly play some budget games, but also uh, to to make you know hard choices about laying off workers, cutting essential services um, uh, in response to plummeting tax revenue. This pushes up the unemployment rate because you have um, hundreds of thousands of, of workers who, who, who are losing their jobs. That's bad. Uh, this is bad for, for of course, the, the provision of the essential services that, that state and local governments provide. Um, and, uh, you know, the same logic that suggests that we should um, that we should uh, help replace the revenue that small businesses are losing, that we should extend uh, uh, generous financing to larger businesses. Um, that same logic, you know, su- suggests that that we should also borrow. Uh, in order to support state governments at this time, uh, so you know if you if you if you don't want essential services cut, if you don't want to see uh, hundreds of thousands uh, or or even a few million additional workers on the unemployment rolls at a time when we're trying to push the unemployment rate down, um, then I think you need to you need to uh, be willing to to give some federal money to the states. Um, but you want to do it in a way that that doesn't allow the money to be used to to bail out um, pension funds that have been mismanaged for for years. When we come back with Michael Strain from the American Enterprise Institute, I want to uh, press a little bit more on the issue of uh, federal bailing out or providing relief to states and localities. More with Michael Strain when we return. 
And before we return to that discussion, let me remind you again, for a limited time only, if you use the discount code SAVE25, you get 25% off the No Safe Spaces live stream. No Safe Spaces, the number one political documentary of 2019. This is the film put together by Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla documenting the assault on free speech in America on social media platforms. Certainly Dennis Prager knows all about that on college campuses in Hollywood and elsewhere. You can watch it now at nosafespaces.com. Take advantage of this opportunity where we're still in the early stages of reopening. If you've got some time on your hands, get the family together. Use the discount code SAFE25 for 25% off viewing No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. You can watch it as many times as you want until May 31st with this special deal. Listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Michael Strain from the American Enterprise Institute, and I just want to uh, pick up on the issue we were discussing of federal relief for states and localities. The idea that recovery comes through the public sector rather than the productive sector. Perhaps this is a time to shrink the size of government that has grown beyond um, all recognition in so so many ways in so many states and localities for that matter, particularly big cities. Uh, I mean, the the idea that you can have 40 million people almost file first-time unemployment benefits and virtually none of them be in the private sector says a lot about uh, the nature of our government-centric focus these days and certainly the political leaders government centric focus and why not uh, this opportunity to move trend lines like we're talking about with for distance learning and and what's going to happen to the cost of a college education and so forth well what about all of these things that we've allowed to be papered over for generations now thinking about unfunded pension and healthcare liabilities in particular this is a time to force some discipline that people haven't been willing to force on themselves at the state and local level? I mean, first, to be clear, the overwhelming majority of job losses have been in the private sector. Right. And that's, of course, also true with the um, with people who are filing for unemployment claims. You know, I think that state pension systems and again, you know, are in terrible shape, or at least many state pension systems are in, are in terrible shape. A few are in like catastrophically terrible shape, like Illinois. And we actively should not be bailing out those pension systems that that's something that's something that 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 congress should be should be actively avoiding uh so i want to be completely completely clear about that um the the states have gotten themselves into this situation the states need to figure out uh with with the relevant parties and, and 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 shareholders how to fix it uh i don't live in illinois money from my pocket should not be sent to illinois by the federal government to to fix illinois pension problems um I view that as a very as, as just a very separate issue from uh, a situation where state tax revenue is plummeting because of a once in a century pandemic, and that forces the state to choose between uh, laying off a whole bunch of state employees um, uh, 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 or um, you know trying to get uh, additional funding from from the government. I think I think it's I think it's appropriate for the government to step in and try and, and try and plug the revenue hole caused by the pandemic um, again in order to avoid a large influx of additional unemployed workers in order to 
avoid states from having to choose between, you know, operating police departments and, 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 and responding to the pandemic. You just don't want to put them in a situation where they have to make those choices uh, driven by falling tax revenue that, that, they, that they couldn't have foreseen that they, and, and that it would have been very difficult to, to adequately plan for. So you want to you want to find a way to support state employment, state government, state and local government employment, uh, maintain the provision of, of essential services while while also not bailing out the, the pension funds. He is Dr. Michael Strain, director of economic policy studies and the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. Michael Strain, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Take care. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Again, follow us, danprofshow.com, where you can get podcasts of the program as well as uh, on Spotify and iTunes, of course. On social media, at Dan Prof Show, on uh, Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, at Prof Dan. Uh, we talked earlier in the week with Dr. Scott Atlas, who is the former head of neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center. And part of our wide range of conversation covered the uh, issue of antibody testing and why there are some people that are uh, essentially uh, mau-mauing the uh, importance of antibody testing, suggesting maybe the tests aren't that accurate. We don't, we don't know if uh, you develop antibodies once infected that prevents future infection. Now, there's a study out from Harvard that we mentioned on yesterday's program that suggests that uh, monkeys that were infected did develop antibodies, which is a good indication that... Uh, you do develop an immune response to COVID-19 that may protect you from being infected again or if you're infected less severely than you were the first time. And uh, a frustrated Dr. Scott Atlas suggests that uh, we're sort of learning things or apparently needing to relearn things that we already know. And uh, he find it, found it a bit curious, some of the criticisms in the direction of antibody testing. And those antibodies are the underlying excitement about why transfusing antibodies from healed people into those who might get sick is protective. That's one sense of excitement here about a drug. And secondly, if you don't believe antibodies are protective, then you would be literally irrational to say that vaccines are necessary because vaccines are injected into people so that they generate antibodies. Antibodies are the means of protection. If you don't believe antibodies are protective, why would you want a vaccine? Mm-hmm. It's literally, we're living in a Kafka novel, for those of your audience who yes. have ever read the book, The Trial. Last question before we let you go. Um, spoke with a microbiologist, Alex Berezow, earlier in the show. He's also a columnist for USA Today. And just asked him the question, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, whether the politician want to admit it or not, with the reopening, are we not effectively de facto pursuing the Swedish model. And he basically said, yeah, I don't see how you describe it any other way. What's your opinion on that? Here's the story. We know when we reopen or even relax any of these total we will get more cases. And then uh, Dr. Atlas went on to talk a little bit more about that, whether you want to call it the Swedish model or herd immunity model or not. The point is um, 
the the antibody testing and the larger conversation about understanding case management and a vulnerable population so you have a textured approach to r- responding to the virus that's what's critical for more on this and since it was the basis and part of our conversation on on antibody testing uh, with uh, Dr. Atlas, we're pleased to be joined by Andrew Bogan, who's a molecular biologist and managing member of Bogan Associates LLC, as well as uh, Dr. Manish Boot, who's an associate professor and chief of pediatric allergy, immunology, and rheumatology at UCLA's Defin, uh, David Geffen School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Boot and Andrew Bogan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. And so um, just building off what uh, Dr. Atlas had to say about the importance of antibody testing and uh, reacting to this op-ed that you two gentlemen had uh, co-authored for The Wall Street Journal, uh, it it seems maybe like we all need, uh, since everybody wants to play sort of epidemiologist, infectious disease expert these days, maybe we all need a crash course in immunology 101 and why antibody testing folds right into that. Yeah, we already know a lot about how the human body responds to infection. And uh, making antibodies and T cell responses is part of protective immunity. We expect the same kind of response in this infection as we do in uh, infections that we know and love, like influenza. And and so it, and so just just starting there. So how I mean, really, give us a, give us like a one on one. You mentioned in your piece in the journal, sort of there's there's two uh, re- responses uh, from the immune system uh, upon being infected by a virus. How does that work? And, and then fold in the importance of antibody testing in terms of being forward-looking and how to combat this virus. Yeah. In a naive individual who's never seen this infection before, uh, upon the virus entering into those cells in the, in the respiratory tract, um, those cells start to set off an alert. Uh, and that alert is what we call the innate immune system. Uh, a variety of uh, signals and detection sensors uh, sense this virus inside the cells and, and tries to start to clamp down on the virus uh, by blocking various activities in it, uh, that the virus was uh, going to undertake, I- including the production of interferons, a major defense mechanism that blocks viruses from being able to reproduce and, and um, also attracts a lot of white blood cells into the area to help start the fight. So for, very, uh, for many respiratory viral infections, uh, that phase of the illness may last for a few days and may be enough to significantly conquer these viruses, to keep them from spreading very much, to keep them from causing a lot of cellular injury. Uh, all the while, the, uh, the proteins from these viruses are being chewed up and digested and, and uh, brought to the lymph nodes where they are presented to T cells and the T cells and the B cells that also live in those lymph nodes uh, gra- grab onto those proteins, those antigens as we call them from the virus and they turn on their systems. Those systems are slower to come online. Uh, the T cells take a couple days more before they fully become activated and leave the lymph nodes and head back into the lung tissue where they can start their fight. Uh, what the T cells do when they enter into the lung tissue is kill all the cells that were infected with virus. And so it's like a sweep up role that the T cells will do to eliminate every virally infected cell. That whole time, the B cells are making antibodies. And that's where antibody testing comes in, is to understand uh, when and how and how much antibodies people are making at what time during the infection and how long will those antibodies last. Uh, The reason this is important is because those antibodies then, uh, having helped finish up the the virus and and finish up the infection, will persist. And many of those antibodies and the cells that make the antibodies, the B cells, 
will live in the blood for years and years and years uh, after the infection, producing protective levels of antibodies, uh, much lower levels of antibodies than are needed during the acute infection, but always a little trickle of protective antibodies out there. And so we can detect those antibodies, and that's what antibody testing is about. And in addition to that, is antibody testing not only uh, also not only about uh, what you were describing, but about understanding what the uh, actual uh, uh, size of the infected population is right now, so you get a better handle on lethality and other uh, metrics that are driving public policy decisions. That's exactly that's right. right. Um, when, when you look at um, seroprevalence studies, which is doing that uh, very thing, trying to analyze what percentage of a particular population has antibodies to a disease. What you're looking for is that hallmark, the, the antibody in those individuals' blood that shows that they've um, fought off a prior infection. Um, and it's seroprevalence testing in California, in New York State, uh, in Miami, um, in numerous cities and countries in Europe now, uh, in Kobe and Japan, that have all shown just that, that we have much higher prevalence of the disease than was understood from just the uh, known cases. Um, and that that means that there's uh, a the same ratio lower um, fatality rate um, than had been perceived before. And and so the criticism of antibody testing, as far as I can tell from some of the press briefings, both at the federal level and in some states as well, is uh, a concern about accuracy. I know, for example, in Illinois, where I live, uh, Governor Pritzker, when queried about antibody testing and releasing the results that uh, he says uh, that releasing the results of antibody testing that he says has been ongoing for some time, he, he's reticent to do so because he talks about in vague generalities about we're not sure about the accuracy of some of these tests and we're still going over it with the experts and and just sort of fluffs it off. But 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 is that the criticism of antibody testing and is it legitimate that there's an accuracy problem? Yeah, so um, test accuracy is always a worthwhile consideration. Um, I think antibody tests for this particular virus, because it's such a um, you know, policy-related set of considerations, like you said, uh, has generated a lot more attention and a lot more scrutiny than these things uh, typically would, and that's good. Um, but I think this sort of desire to paint antibody tests as universally inaccurate is just incorrect. Um, there are many tests out there that are sufficiently accurate for seroprevalent studies where you don't need certain confidence in any one um, patient's positive or negative result. You just need a statistical sample across a large group um, that can power a study to give you a reasonable result of, of prevalence. Um, or in the case of an individual, there are now um, ELISA tests available from a number of different uh, commercial manufacturers that have been approved for uh, uh, emergency use authorization, um, which is a uh, process of the FDA for the purpose of testing that have um, specificity and uh, sensitivity very close to 100%, or in at least one case, I believe 100% on both measures. So, I mean, that's as good as a test could be. Uh, when we come back with uh, Andrew Bogan, molecular biologist, and Dr. Manish Boot, associate professor and uh, chief of pediatric allergy immuno immunology and rheumatology at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine, I want to continue on this conversation of antibody testing and, and why, like COVID-19 testing generally, it took so long to ramp up. More with these two gentlemen right after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're having a technical discussion that uh, is, help, is, is very helpfully being translated for the layman like myself with Andrew Bogan, molecular biologist and managing member of Bogan Associates, LLC, and Dr. Manesh Boot, who is an associate professor and chief of pediatric allergy, immunology, and rheumatology at UCLA's Defen, David Geffen. I keep saying that. David Geffen School of Medicine. Uh, these two gentlemen penned an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal on antibody testing. And, and antibody testing, uh, guys, t- took some time to come online and, and was actually somewhat downplayed by uh, Dr. Tony Fauci uh, through April. You know, it was all about COVID testing, COVID testing, COVID testing, because we have to get a better handle on the spread and lethality. But uh, antibody testing was something, you know, we'll get to that. Is there any reason um, why antibody testing and COVID-19 testing couldn't have been happening on parallel tracks uh, as soon as testing started to get ramped up in mid-March? They, they were happening on parallel tracks. Definitely uh, antibody testing was developed uh, in a variety of places in China and in the United States and all over the world, um, really almost contemporaneously with the sequencing of the viral genome. Once uh, the discovery was that this particular virus was a coronavirus, uh, and there's a lot of knowledge known about coronaviruses, people started to uh, make the proteins of this virus in the lab, uh, which is the first step to really making an antibody test. And that part takes a few weeks, and it took a few weeks. And um, I see. you can find papers from early on where people were actually starting to develop antibody tests. They were still very academic uh, in the early phase. And translating that to an actual commercial, usable test out in the field does take additional time. And, and is it your uh, position that uh, the, the antibody uh, testing um, and uh, the, the, the serology studies that were discussed um, ultimately, that, that, that's uh, perhaps uh, the most promising path to a vaccine of some sort? Uh, well, if you're going to make a vaccine, you're going to want to test for the uh, eliciting of those antibodies. Just as you uh, said in the intro, if you can make um, antibodies in response to a vaccine, that's a pretty good sign, especially if they're the right kind of antibodies. One thing that we, we didn't really get a chance to write about but is worth mentioning is that not all antibodies are created equal. Some parts of the virus... Uh, are uh, able to elicit antibodies, but they, those antibodies may not be as protective as other antibodies uh, that attack other parts of the virus, if you can imagine that. Um, for example, you put bumpers at the front of your car because that's going to protect you from hitting the car in front of you. You don't put bumpers on the side of your car. Uh, you want to put your antibodies where they're really going to grab onto the meat, the business end of the virus, and that those antibodies are likely to be neutralizing. Uh, so one of the one of the considerations of the antibody test that that Andrew mentioned a minute ago is that, you know, we want to make sure that antibody testing, when it's done uh, for individual level, to try to really understand on an individual level, did this vaccine work, uh, is to test for those kinds of antibodies, those high-quality neutralizing antibodies, as they're called. That this is like... We have now... I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, we have now started to see uh, some preliminary results from some of the early vaccine trials showing just that, showing neutralizing antibodies in individuals who've been vaccinated, which is a very early... Um, signal, but a very promising one. And, and so it's, it's the, then as part of this, um, the, the, the phrase that's been used, the conv- and, and probably this is the right terminology, convalescent serum donors, um, this, yeah. is, this is who you want to identify uh, f- for the purpose of treating uh, patients who are infected. Correct. Yeah. Uh, the, the, you know, people generously offer their own blood products, the plasma from their blood, uh, which can turn out to be a treatment for people who are sick. Uh, if 
those antibodies are in that blood. And um, in order to know whether this person who, who generously rolls up their sleeve to offer their blood actually has a protective product in their veins, you have to be able to test for those antibodies. Uh, when, when you're um, uh, thinking about uh, the, the response to this, uh, there's a, a lot of arguments going in a lot of different directions, as, as you all know. One of the things on the immunology front that's been advanced by some doctors who are opposed to the, the lockdowns, at least in the draconian form some have taken and, and are more perhaps uh, uh, strong proponents of, of uh, a phased in reopening than other medical professionals. They, they say, you know, one of the things you do if you just stay locked down and you're not exposed to uh, the uh, elements in the world that generate an immune response that keep your immune system strong is that you actually see your immune system weakened if you're sort of sheltered off from the world. Is that uh, is there is there scientific basis in that or is is that not a significant concern in terms of the health effects of the lockdown? That, that is not a significant uh, um, concern. People are exposed to a variety of antigens from viruses and bacteria and fungi in every breath you take. Uh, unless you're living in some sort of hermetically sealed bubble, uh, you are getting exposed to plenty of foreign antigens with every breath and every touch of every surface. And people should be going outside uh, and should be getting exposed to sunlight and to fresh air. Uh, it, it is spring uh, in most of the country, and uh, there, there's no reason that people shouldn't get exposed to a variety of antigens with, with breathing and walking and living a normal life. The idea of the lockdown is to prevent exposure to one particular pathogen, not any uh, all, and all antigens. So with respect to this whole sort of uh, uh, relentless discussion of testing, which mostly just involves people keep to repeating the word testing, um, uh, both on the for the virus, for antibodies, uh, the vaccine trials that are ongoing and, you know, some of the early promising results from the Moderna clinical trials. What is it that we need to sort of understand at a top line level? Uh, we, we don't need to pretend to be experts. What, what should we be tracking? What should we understand? And sort of what is the noise that we should try to push out? I'll take a crack at it uh, at the immunological level. And then uh, Andrew can talk a little bit uh, about um, some of the more societal level implications. I think the two types of testing, testing for the virus itself, for the viral RNA through a variety of different testing mechanisms now, it's important to know if you're currently infected. Do you have the virus currently in your nose, in the back of your throat, and uh, in, in your lungs? And, and that's an important test because it tells you whether you are potentially able to infect others. Uh, so if there is going to be uh, some opening and, uh, and somebody gets a, a nasal swab that day and you're able to say, oh, yeah, you don't have the virus in your nose today, uh, that's a good sign that you're unlikely to infect other people uh, on that day. Now, you could get infected an hour later or uh, a, a day later, and that test doesn't uh, indicate that. Um, antibody testing, on the other hand, is important for looking back in time and asking, were you infected in the past? Did you have uh, some kind of exposure to this infection uh, that your body responded to? And we can detect that, and we can detect how much of that you made. Uh, that's going to be very useful to understand things like how much antibody is actually protective. Uh, which kinds of antibodies are the most protective kinds of antibodies? As I mentioned, not all antibodies are created equal. And, uh, and even then, the corollary to that is, did this vaccine work? Are you protected as a consequence of this vaccine or of a past infection? And, yeah, and I think Andrew. one of the important things, important messages to take from that is that if antibodies were not protective, then vaccination would not work. 
it's our expectation, and I think the expectation of most immunologists and uh, scientists who've thought about this clearly and have seen the data that's coming out and emerging, um, that antibodies, like in the case of other coronaviruses, to this one do provide some protective benefit, and therefore a vaccine strategy is a viable strategy forward. And that's very encouraging. He is Andrew Bogan. He's a molecular biologist and managing member of Bogan Associates, LLC, and uh, his uh, colleague, Dr. Manish Boot, who is an associate professor and chief of pediatric allergy, immunology and rheumatology at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your expertise and insights. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. This uh, debate over excess deaths continues to rage on in terms of um, looking year over year at deaths if, uh, uh, that, that are brought on by various maladies and uh, trying to quantify whether or not we are more likely undercounting COVID-19 deaths or more likely overcounting them. This is a debate going on uh, in academia right now. Uh, The way we're counting COVID-19 deaths has been presented transparently. You can't argue that. Uh, Dr. Burks presented it at the national level. Here in Illinois, Dr. Zike, the public health director for the state, also said essentially what Dr. Burks said. Look, If you have COVID-19 and you die for any reason, effectively, that's a COVID-19 death. To be clear in terms of the definition of people dying of COVID. So the case definition is is very simplistic. It means at the time of death, um, it was a COVID positive diagnosis. So that means that if you were in hospice and had already been given, you know, a few weeks to live, and then you also were found to have COVID, that would be counted as a COVID death. It means that if, um, it technically, if even if you died of a clear alternate cause, but you had COVID at the same time, it's still listed as a COVID death. So um, everyone who's listed as a COVID death doesn't mean that that was the cause of the death, but they had COVID at the time of death. I hope- well, well, I mean, so they, they've set it out straight away. So you can't say they're they're misdirecting or they're, they're giving you a false impression of how they're counting the deaths. Uh, there is no distinction between dying with or dying from. It's all dying from for statistical purposes. So what's the issue with that? To answer that question, we're pleased to be joined by John Lott, Jr., president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, author of The War on Guns and More Guns, Less Crime. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to talk to you. So to my question, you heard what Dr. ZK said. Dr. Burke said something similar to that in terms of uh, the national count. So uh, what's the problem? We understand how they're classifying these deaths, and so we should take that into account when we look at the numbers. Right. Well, that's not the only issues that you have. I mean, those are significant by itself. And as you say, it's across the country that they're doing it. But take New York, for example. A third of the deaths that are classified as coronavirus deaths, uh, when they've done the post-mortem tests, which they do on all the bodies in New York, a third of those uh, 
people that they classify as coronavirus deaths tested negative on the test. They were classified as coronavirus deaths simply because they had symptoms that were similar to what you would have with the coronavirus, but it could have been the seasonal flu. Uh, you know, 85% of the people who have uh, the coronavirus are asymptomatic. Uh, the vast majority of the remaining 15% have essentially flu-like symptoms. You're only talking about a few percent which actually have any type of really serious symptoms beyond what you would see with the normal flu. So, you know, you have a third of the cases in New York, probably more than a third of the cases in New Jersey, uh, which are being classified that way. Those are pretty large numbers. But on top of that, uh, one of the other things that Deborah Burke has said is that um, as much as 25% of these cases with this broad definition to begin with are being double counted. You know, if you have a third of the cases, let's say in New York, which probably shouldn't be included, uh, or the vast majority of them shouldn't be included, and then you have these other issues that you raised to begin with that any death, even if it's a suicide or somebody dying in a car accident or somebody dying from a heart attack, even though they're asymptomatic. So it's completely unrelated. And as I say, 85% of uh, the people with the, the virus are asymptomatic. Um, you're adding another 25% on that simply because of errors in how the CDC is counting it. And of course, today it just came out, or yesterday it just came out, that the CDC has acknowledged it's made another error. And that is when it's been putting out the number of new cases every day, what they've actually been doing is the number of new cases and the number of people who have positive for the antibody test that's there. So what, what may be also happening on top of that is that even if you have an antibody, which means you may have had the, the virus at some point in the past and you die, uh, that may also be being counted. When we come back with John Lott Jr. from the Crime Prevention Research Center, I want to pick up on the points that uh, you were making, John, about the inaccuracies in the count of COVID-19 related deaths and uh, provide a little bit of a historical example in the not too distant past uh, about, uh, you know, accuracy in real time versus uh, debates that rage for years after a virus uh, has subsided. More with John Lott Jr. when we return. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with John Lott Jr. from the Crime Prevention Research Center, and I want to go back to the point you made about uh, the uh, various sources of inaccuracy in the counting at the federal and state levels with respect to COVID-19-related deaths. You may have been able to make that case in March when testing capacity was an issue, but that's not an issue now, and so there's no reason not to be able to test and to confirm. So that's an excellent point. You're also right about Dr. Burks. Remember, it was just... About a week and a half ago, she was quoted as saying by the Washington Post that there's nothing from the CDC that I can trust. I mean, that is a staggering indictment of somebody in her position of the CDC. 
the double counting issue that you raise is another legitimate one. And Dr. Azike here in Illinois has said the same thing about data entry errors. And that's what you're talking to about, you know, whatever, that how it's being recorded. There's errors being made, human errors or or errors in terms of the algorithms being used, depending on how, how they're assessing all of this data. But she's conceded that point, too. There's always going to be human errors with this and so on and so forth. So, boy, th- those are three big buckets of potential error when you look at count. And why is that important? Not because we want to sort of dehumanize or minimize the amount of suffering and death, but because big public policy decisions are being based largely on this number. Right. Look, if 60% or so of these deaths are kind of false cases, you're still going to end up with 40,000 deaths that are there. And 40,000 deaths is a lot of deaths. There's no way around. Right. And it's important. You still need to put that in perspective. The other thing that concerns me is that a lot of people are dying or going to die because of the shutdown. You know, they use terms like elective surgery. I don't think people understand what elective surgery means. Elective surgery means any surgery that's scheduled. So if you have somebody who has cancer and they're going to go in for cancer surgery and that's scheduled, that's surgery that's been put off because of people like your governor and others, which have essentially closed down the hospitals to elective surgery. Well, what's going to happen if you make people have to wait two months or three months for cancer surgery? What does that do to their survival rates that are there? So many other people who aren't going to hospitals because of fear about the virus. If you have somebody who has heart issues or a stroke, time is essential for making sure that people are properly treated. When we're trying to make a decision here, what we really need to figure out is how many people have died from the shutdown. You also have suicides and uh, stress-related illnesses as jobs are lost and as businesses are being destroyed. Uh, you You mentioned excess deaths, which is a number that's constantly being mentioned in the media. And there's been a huge increase in deaths over and above the normal rate of deaths, let's say last year or the year before, it's about 30% higher. To attribute those directly to the virus is a huge mistake because not everything else is the same as it was in past years. You have all these people who aren't going to the doctors or are getting treatment being delayed. And so that's the reason why yesterday you had a large number of doctors sign a letter saying that they were concerned that there was a ticking time bomb of mass deaths that were going to be occurring because of the governors who have shut down uh, the healthcare system in the country for many types of cases that people have issues with. It's almost like we've never had anything like this before, except we have. The response is unprecedented. The, an outbreak like this, plus all the complications in terms of responding to an outbreak like this, not new. And all you have to do is go back to H1N1. Four years after H1N1 had subsided, the end of the last decade, there was a study done by a bunch of epidemiologists, four years removed, trying to assess how accurate was the counting of deaths and other metrics with respect to H1N1. And they looked at more than uh, six dozen studies that were done sort of within a year of the outbreak to the conclusion of the outbreak. And they varied from lethality rates projections of one in 100,000 to 10,000 in 100,000. They were still debating what the lethality was of H1N1 four years after it was a distant memory. 
And so I, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised that we're having these debates right now about the accuracy, not just of models, but of the data collection. Look, I mean, there have been huge costs to this. My own fear is that we're going to look back on this. And while it's understandable that people wanted to be careful on this, the damage that's being done to the economy, the damage that's being done to people's wealth and incomes, the huge, massive increase in debt now that's well above 100% of GDP is going to have ramifications for generations. You know, these governors, uh, whether it be uh, your governor or, you know, Michigan's governor or New York or other ones, which are keeping the economies in these places locked down, you know, there are going to be real consequences. I'm concerned that just the reduced income, poverty, those things are related to health in the long run for people. Those things are related to things like suicide rates. We're not seeing a balance in terms of the cost and benefit discussions of the different types of rules that are being put in place. I'll make one last point, and that is, you know, these people that are putting out these estimates, as you say, which have been wildly wrong, these are public health. I've had to deal a lot with public health people on the gun control debate. Amazingly enough, uh, while you have criminologists and economists that deal a lot with crime, and you would think criminologists and stuff should be getting most of the money from the government dealing with gun control type issues. Over 90% of the money, about 94% of the money that the federal government gives out to study gun control issues goes to these same public health people that are providing these predictions and these estimates on what's happening with the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're any more accurate or useful in going and studying gun control than they've been in doing this. I don't even know how you spend that much money that they do on these studies. Well, but, uh, you know, just so people know, the vast majority of pro-gun control research, and that's the reason why they give it to the public health people, because unlike criminologists and economists who are very skeptical of gun control, the public health people are, you know, crazy in favor of, uh, of gun control generally. Um, you know, they're, they're the ones who are getting massive amounts of money. And, and their statistics, I have to tell you, are scary because they're like 30, 40 years out of date compared to other academic professions. And you see that just in terms of the huge errors that they make in terms of these predictions for uh, the coronavirus. He is John Lott, Jr., president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, author of The War on Guns, More Guns, Less Crime, as well as Freedomnomics, as was mentioned. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. Earlier in the program, we talked to Hillsdale professor David Azerod about uh, identitarian politics and what the social justice warrior's endgame is. And uh, also discussed uh, the question of whether maybe we'll see some diminishment of identitarian politics after we are on the other side of the pandemic and fully reopened and sort of reestablishing our our lives in totality. And we we won't have time to indulge the stylish discussions about uh, pronoun usage. Well, if uh, you think that. 
you may want to listen to what Joe Biden had to say in an interview on The Breakfast Club, this popular urban radio show, uh, uh, morning show in, in New York, hosted by this guy Charlemagne, who routinely gets, you know, that the leading Democrats on the on his program talk politics from the perspective of somebody for, uh, that is focused on what are you going to do for the black community, which is a fine perspective. Here's Joe Biden's answer uh, as he uh, shuffled off his appearance on The Breakfast Club. Well, you know, Thanks so the, much. That's really our time. I apologize. You can't do that to black media. You I can't do that to white media and black media because my wife has to go on at 6 o'clock. Okay. Oh, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. Cause it's I a, will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more okay. questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the fact I want something for my community. I would love to see. Take a look at my record, man. I extended the voting racks 25 years. I have a record that is second to none. The NAACP has endorsed me every time I've run. The war. I mean, come on. Take a look at the record. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate. Anyway, thanks. I will come back. Is there any conversation involving Joe Biden that isn't uncomfortable? Uh. If you have trouble figuring out whether to vote for Joe Biden or Trump, you ain't black. Hmm. I understand that, uh, what, 92 percent of black voters in 2016 voted for Hillary Clinton. But, you know, 8 uh, percent did not. Maybe the number will be a little bit bigger for Trump this time. Maybe it won't. So, you know, that's the obvious response. The The more dismal concession is that race hustling politics and identitarian politics as practiced by Democrat socialists will only increase, will only increase in intensity coming out of this pandemic, uh, particularly after Joe Biden makes a virtue signaling identitarian choice for his running mate, which you can guarantee he will do. Anyway, have a great Memorial Day weekend and please do remember all of the men and women and their families who died in service to this country, sacrificing for freedom rather than sacrificing our freedom. This is Dan Pop. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.